welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet Podcast, and happy World Wetlands Day. I am your host, Georgia Ray. World Wetlands Day is celebrated each year on February 2nd to raise awareness about wetlands. This day also marks the anniversary of the Convention on Wetlands, which was adopted as an international treaty in 1971. According to the World Wetlands Day organization, nearly 90% of the world's wetlands have been degraded since the 1700s, and we are losing wetlands three times faster than forests. The organization also explains that wetlands are critically important ecosystems, contributing to biodiversity, climate mitigation and adaptation, freshwater availability, and world economies. As we will hear from our guests today, urgent action is needed to reverse wetland loss and protect existing wetlands. So, in the spirit of World Wetlands Day, we are launching a series of episodes dedicated to highlighting this incredible work done by wetland heroes throughout the country. This wetland series will also serve as countdown to our 2023 National Wetlands Awards Ceremony in May. Today, I am speaking with Ross Weaver, the Program Assistant Director for Wetlands Watch. Wetlands Watch is a Virginia-based nonprofit focused on nature conservation where land, communities, and water meet. Recently, the organization has been focused on sea level rise, which is predicted to take 50 to 80% of tidal wetlands if current trends continue. They are also involved in training landscape professionals to use nature-based solutions, growing a buffer restoration workforce, increasing collaboration with FEMA and other emergency management agencies, encouraging community science and general advocacy work. Ross himself is a native of Virginia and received his BA in political science and a BS in environmental policy and planning from Virginia Tech before heading to UVA for his master's degree in urban and environmental planning. Interested in the intersection of land use policy, urban design, and the natural environment, Ross believes that the use of nature-based solutions, environmentally sensitive design, and open space preservation are the most effective ways to adapt to the ever-increasing flooding plaguing coastlines. Today, we will talk mostly about wetland protection and conservation in Virginia. We will get into broad-reaching topics such as the future of green infrastructure and wetland conservation, potential avenues for policy innovation, and the importance of coalition building in nature-based implementation. Ross, thank you for being here today. And I want to start off with a pretty basic question. What is Wetlands Watch and why was it created? Well, thank you so much for having me. So Wetlands Watch really started back in 1999, really around a kitchen table in Norfolk, Virginia. We had a group of citizens come together to oppose a nearby dredging permit that was was going to harm some wetlands. And that effort really helped our founding members better understand the scale of, of these wetlands disturbing activities that were routinely occurring across Norfolk, but also across Hampton Roads and really the state statewide. So we were incorporated as a 501c3 back on Earth Day in 2001. We've kind of been at this work ever since. Over the last 20 years or so, our goals have remained the same, but our focal areas, our messaging, you know, our, our approaches have really evolved significantly. Our early regulatory and policy work focused on wetlands permit decisions, but early on we we learned that 
that approach didn't get us very far. Virginia is a very strong property rights state, and land use decisions often trump the regulatory process. So we've always made it a, a priority to focus at the locality level. Local governments are the ones that are responsible for these land use decisions. And so from that foundation, we've expanded into a lot of really different, interesting programmatic areas. As you mentioned in your intro, back in 2007, we did do a study and estimated that Virginia could lose somewhere between 50 to 80% of our tidal wetlands with just two feet of sea level rise. And actually, more recent studies really paint a more concerning picture. Virginia first released our coastal master plan in 2021. The impact assessment study from that plan estimated that about 89% of our existing tidal wetlands can be lost to open water by 2080. I would like to note that those figures don't capture potential expansion of our tidal marshes, but the migration of those marshes is dependent on the slope and the land use of our surrounding areas. So things like armored shorelines, you know, bulkheads, they stop that natural migration. So that really influenced our work in terms of open space preservation, managed retreat, and we'll get into greater detail on that later. But it's really that threat of drowning wetlands that has transitioned us into the resiliency space, you know, both to protect wetlands, but also to ensure that natural infrastructure is prioritized in the fight against climate change. So as you just mentioned, recently your organization has been really focused on this issue of sea level rise. You alluded to it a little bit in your first answer, but some may not understand the overlap between wetland conservation and sea level rise. Can you give a little more information there and why you've been so invested in this space? Yeah, absolutely. And we do get asked that a lot. Like I said earlier, we, you know, we really do. We moved into this space because of how threatened our tidal wetlands are. But also that's provided us a really effective pathway to push for our organization's goals. So while wetlands preservation remains a key component of what we're working on, it's really one aspect of a larger strategy for overall resiliency. When we first started out, you know, we really focused on wetlands preservation for ecological reasons. And to be honest, we had limited success connecting to citizens on why wetlands matter so much. When we started adjusting our messaging to discuss wetlands with the context of protecting private property, we started to see larger gains in awareness of their value. From there, we've really expanded into all of the environmental impacts of climate change. We have a lot of stormwater issues because of our increasing development, increasing precipitation, and we can really use natural infrastructure more broadly to address that. Solutions like bioswales and rain gardens help us take water out of the stormwater system, which is often overcapacity in this region. So in doing so, we can infiltrate water, store it, slow it down, and that has benefits you know, for the built environment, but also downstream with improved water quality. And again, there are a lot of multiple benefits there. Trees are another natural sponge for stormwater, but trees also improve property values. They reduce the heat island impact. There's an environmental justice aspect there as formerly redline communities are often the areas where you have the least amount of natural green infrastructure. This broader look at the benefits of green infrastructure, natural solutions has really been sort of a natural progression for us. Your organization is particularly passionate about using nature-based solutions for coastal flood prevention. For those listeners that may not know, what is a nature-based solution and why is it effective for flood prevention? Well, in essence, nature-based solutions are actions that protect, manage, and restore natural ecosystems so we can benefit from the multitude of benefits they provide. In the case of wetlands, NOAA has estimated that coastal wetlands provide over $23 billion in storm protection to the United States every year. Really, wetlands are a natural sponge, and even 15 feet of marsh can absorb 50% of wave energy as it reaches the coast. That has huge benefits for flood protection and erosion control, but one of the reasons this is so important is that these ecosystem services provide a litany of additional benefits. Over 90% of our recreational fin fish and shellfish rely on wetlands for food or habitat during some part of their life cycle. That number for commercial fishing is about 75%. 
And in Virginia, we spend about $1 billion a year on recreational fishing annually. That results in around $72 million in state and local tax revenue each year. Wetlands are also natural filters, so they have a huge impact on meeting our water quality goals. So really investing in these services provides an exceptional return on investment. And to that point, NOAA has estimated that every dollar spent on wetland restoration can yield a benefit to cost ratio of seven to one. It's also important to note that when we talk about nature-based solutions, we're also including man-made systems that mimic natural processes. One of the first things you learn in floodplain management is that when you put up a wall, the water still has to go somewhere. Flood walls, bulkheads, they're critical components in our overall resiliency. They're not the solution for every area. They're not a silver bullet. They're expensive to install, they're expensive to maintain, and they can push flood risk downstream. So it's imperative to prioritize these nature-based features like living shorelines whenever it's feasible. That allows for erosion control, shoreline stabilization, habit restoration, all of those multiple benefits I've mentioned. And they're not creating those downstream impacts like a hardened shoreline would. And in fact, the General Assembly of Virginia has actually created a policy that living shoreline techniques are now the preferred stabilization method for all tidal shorelines, which is a really huge step in the right direction. That does sound like a really big step in the right direction. As you may know, ELI does some work with nature-based hazard mitigation through wetlands as well. And we're, you know, looking at ways to get local governments more involved in these types of solutions. So you're a native Virginian and you continue to live and work in the state for an organization particularly focused on protecting this area. What makes Virginia unique from a wetland and coastal resiliency perspective? Well, Virginia is a really unique place for a lot of reasons. Um, there's a ton of diversity in our ecosystems, but also in our built environments. We have these beautiful natural coastal areas in Southern Virginia Beach, the Eastern Shore, the Northern Neck, but it's also a major economic center for the country. We have the third largest port on the East Coast, the largest naval base in the world, NASA facilities, shipyards, and a very large urban population. We also have a wealth of national landmarks and many of those are vulnerable to sea level rise. Jamestown, for example, is especially vulnerable to that. So from that perspective, it's really an ideal test bed for a lot of innovative solutions because the challenges and needs are so varied across the Commonwealth. And really, sea level rise is just one component of that. We're dealing with high rates of subsidence in the coastal zone, which to this point have contributed to about 50% of our relative sea level rise. We've also experienced increased precipitation statewide, and that has had terrible impacts in the southwestern region of the state. Coastal Virginia is really a large alluvial plain. But the geography in southwestern Virginia is mountainous. So in Hampton Roads, we can often see hurricanes or nor'easters coming. We can plan accordingly, evacuate if necessary. But flooding in the southwest is much more like a tornado. In 2022, there was a catastrophic flood in Buchanan County. And in a mountainous area like that, development tends to be concentrated within the floodplain because it's really the only developable land available. So when an area like that gets five or six inches of rainfall over the span of a couple hours, there's going to be terrible flash flooding and a whole lot of damage. So the needs here are really significant, and it's put us on the front line for addressing these climate impacts. And on that front line, from a policy's perspective, what has been done and what more do you want to see? Well, I do believe that the state has been a real leader nationally in addressing these impacts, but obviously there's a huge need and a lot of room for growth. One of the biggest issues we've been dealing with is how we're going to deal with that wetland migration so we've been working really hard on that. We've established a coastal retreat network, which is a national community of practice that is focused on grounded project work. Wetlands migration is extremely complicated. It involves a lot of competing goals and priorities amongst property owners, localities, environmental groups. And that is going to be one of the largest areas for growth you know, in the next couple of decades, how we, how we deal with that recurrent flooding, how we deal with this natural migration. 
Are there any particularly innovative policy strategies you've used in Virginia that you want others nationally to take a closer look at? Definitely. Uh, I'd say there's probably an entire podcast devoted to what the state has done to this point at the state level, but also the local level. So locally and within you know, coastal Virginia, I've mentioned you know, the increasing precipitation we're seeing in the state and Virginia Beach is already dealing with those with that issue. Virginia Beach kind of went ahead of the curve and hired an engineering firm to do a very large precipitation study for the region. They found about a 20% increase in our precipitation from our natural or national trends. And they've actually taken that data and they've used it to inform their stormwater management standards. So now essentially when you put in a new development in Virginia Beach, you have to address 20% more stormwater. As far as I can see, they're the first first locality that's taken that proactive approach. And I think that's something that really should be replicated and modeled in other areas. In terms of other cities, Norfolk has had maybe perhaps just recently created the most resilient zoning ordinance in the country. They actually have a point system that awards developers credit for doing kind of above and beyond the baseline standards for development. So that can include things like adding in more green infrastructure, adding in more open space, some carbon mitigation techniques like including charging for electric vehicles. But in a really innovative way, they've also included a managed retreat component. So essentially, a developer can elect to provide funding to a land trust in the region that will handle the transfer of a flood-prone area, put that land under an easement, demolish a structure that's been recurrently flooded, and make sure that land stays in open space for perpetuity. And again, we've never seen another city take a take an approach like that, and it's a really innovative model that I think a lot of cities could benefit from. As everyone knows, funding is always one of the biggest issues when you're trying to address resiliency. And the city of Hampton has done great work in that space. They're one of the first cities in the country that have created something called an environmental impact bond, and that's being used to fund green infrastructure solutions throughout the city. And it's not just limited to urban localities. On the Middle Peninsula, they have been a real leader in developing solutions for, for rural areas. They have a program called Fight the Flood that connects private property owners to technical experience, to contractors, and to funding sources to actually create resiliency solutions on their private property. And that's always been a very big barrier because a lot of funding solutions we have currently are typically limited to public lands and their challenges and complications with, with getting funding onto private spaces. And the Fight the Flood program has been addressing that head on and has done great work and is a great model for other rural localities to look at and implement. Yeah, that is super interesting program. As I mentioned before, ELI is doing some similar work in this space. And we've also run into that issues of how do you incentivize those private landowners? So really awesome that there's a program working on that and definitely something that I know we here will look into further and I hope our listeners will too. If I can go to talking a little bit more about the green infrastructure piece, Wetlands Watch trains landscaping professionals to better integrate green infrastructure. That was something you were just talking about as potentially a way to gain more points in that schema. So how did that come about? Was it related to that new policy initiative? And what does that Wetland Watch landscape professional training look like now? That's a great question. A few years ago, we we started to identify this issue that was happening where localities or private property owners would spend quite a lot of money installing green infrastructure solutions and things like rain gardens, bioswales, but those solutions weren't being maintained properly. And oftentimes they were actually being damaged by landscaping crews would come in and mow wetlands grasses. 
there wasn't a lot of training available for folks who were responsible for the design installation and then especially the maintenance of, of this infrastructure. So we saw a natural gap there and we worked with some of our partner organizations and developed the Chesapeake Bay Landscape Professional Program, which is essentially a training system of and a network of professionals who are learning to become better green infrastructure practitioners and environmental stewards. To date, we've actually trained more than 1,000 practitioners in the region. And so really, this is a on-the-ground coursework that really teaches people how to, like I say, design, install, and maintain these features. The success of that kind of infrastructure is absolutely dictated on how it's operating on a given space. You have to be able to identify when something isn't infiltrating properly, when something is eroding where it shouldn't be. These things require a, a pretty advanced skill set that isn't always available if that training isn't available. So we've had great success with that. It's really expanded into a lot of areas. We've been doing this work throughout Virginia, but also in neighboring states, and it's growing all the time. So that's been one of the one of the big successes of our organization. Yeah, it sounds like it. And it's obviously a really great way to bring in, you know, community members who might not traditionally be involved in this kind of wetland work, policy work, flood prevention work. So it's a good transition because I did want to talk about other ways you bring community members and organizations into conservation efforts. Absolutely. So we always have viewed ourselves as a boundary organization. So, you know, we're a really small staff size. We've got a lot of different interesting programmatic work, and we really need to rely on the support of other organizations and other community members to achieve the goals we've we've outlined. So we do that in a lot of different ways. One of the ones that I think is maybe most interesting, we have a program called Catch the King, Catch the King Tide, which is essentially a community science event. So every year during the, the highest tide of the year, we organize a citizen science event where folks can come and actually map flood extent, you know, throughout the region. So we have a phone app, it's called Sea Level Rise. And folks who are interested, they download this app and they come out during the event. And basically they chart the extent of flooding during a high tide. And that data is used for a few different purposes, but one of the one of the most valuable ways, I think, is that it's used to validate flood models. So we have all these excellent flood models and we can see you know, how accurate they are you know, on, a, on a given day how close does that model match up to the flooding we're actually seeing? We choose to use the highest tide of the year because that's really the high tide of the future. You can kind of chart the, the highest perigean tide. It's usually in the fall. Yeah, this way we can see, you know, what does our high tide look like in 2050? What does it look like in 2060? That can really help localities plan for sea level rise, but it's also a way to get citizens involved, let them understand the kind of the threat. And you know, one of the things living in Hampton Roads is that everyone here has seen the impacts of climate change. It's not really a political issue. We're all on board because we see it every day. We have nuisance flooding every day. So this way we can really engage citizens. We can let them start planning this data. We can help even let them inform, you know, inform modeling and local government work. And that's been a really exciting project. We've had great success with that. In fact, we're actually in the, the Guinness Book of World Records. We had the largest community survey for environmental data. I think we had over 700 people sign up for our Catch the King event in 2017, and we've carried that on to this day. Well, that is a fun fact in the Guinness Book of World Records. That's awesome. You also have an initiative called the Resilient Research and Design Collaboratory. What does that work entail? So that's actually one of the projects that I'm, I'm most proud of, and I've 
really enjoyed working on. Really, the way this work came about, this was in 20, I think 2014. So about a year before I started working with Wetlands Watch, we partnered with a couple universities in the region, Hampton University and Old Dominion University. And we wanted to create basically a practical design challenge for students. So we looked at neighborhood in Norfolk, Virginia, Chesterfield Heights, which is a really interesting historic community along the shoreline out in Norfolk. And has some pretty rough flood issues. And so the students came in for a year. These are architecture students and engineering students. And they looked at design solutions, brought in mentors, and we brought in you know, experts throughout the region to help inform their work. They created some, some solutions, as I saw it, for dealing with the flood issues in that community. And we gave that work to the city of Norfolk. They were very impressed with it. They took that work, they refined it, and they actually included it in a national resilience disaster competition proposal was successful. The city of Norfolk was awarded $120 million to actually implement some of those solutions on the ground, which was you know, a huge, huge investment in this neighborhood. And also, it was a great opportunity for the students. Several of those students were immediately hired by the firms who were actually doing the construction in that neighborhood. So there's this really interesting sort of professional development component to that as well. And so after that process, you know, we looked at this and said, this is a great, you know, this is something we need to, to really expand out and try to keep doing. So from that point, we developed what we call the collaboratory. And again, basically, we're trying to connect all of Virginia's academic institutions to on the ground flooding issues throughout Hampton Roads and really throughout coastal Virginia. So these are typically you know, senior students, graduate students. We're looking for a, a year-long capstone or a design practicum. And we bring them into an area that has these issues. We bring in mentors. We go out and look at the site. And we try to get some preliminary work done and obviously engage deeply with the community and figure out what the community wants and what their response is and what is you know what has the most support. We try to put all that work together, basically to put these communities at the front line for funding when funding becomes available. And like I said, we've had great success with that. We've worked with over 250 students in the last five years. Some of those projects have been funded by national grants. Some of those students have been hired by local firms. And a lot of these communities have gotten some really solid work that, like I say, puts them at the front line when funding becomes available for some of these resiliency interventions. Yeah, that has that great dual purpose of creating that next generation of professionals as well. So that's a really great initiative you guys have going there. If I can shift gears a little bit here as we reach the end of the episode, I've talked a couple times throughout the episode about the work that ELI is doing bridging the gap between hazard planners and nature-based mitigation strategies, or at least trying to bridge that gap, particularly for flooding. I saw that Wetlands Watch has been doing some similar work alongside FEMA and the National Flood Insurance Program. What does that look like? How did you all get involved with that aspect of the work? It's interesting because kind of to your earlier question, you wouldn't think that a wetlands conservation group like like Wetlands Watch would be you know, actively working to become experts in, in the National Flood Insurance Program or, or within FEMA. But early on, we recognized that there was a, at the time, a fairly little known program within the National Flood Insurance Program called the Community Rating System that actually had great benefits for us and for our goals. For folks who don't know, the community rating system is a subset of the National Flood Insurance Program that rewards localities for going above and beyond the minimum baseline standards from, from the NFIP. And when that happens, there's a, a whole textbook of activities that a locality can do to better prepare for flood mitigation. 
And in doing so, they're awarded points in the system that corresponds to different classes. If you enroll within the CRS, you're given, you start off at a at class nine, goes all the way down to one. And each time you graduate to an additional class, the FEMA flood insurance policyholders in your locality actually receive a direct reduction on their flood insurance premiums. So this is an awesome way to actually incentivize really, really stringent floodplain management. And community members love this program because, again, they're getting a direct benefit and a direct discount on their flood insurance premiums. Within that CRS program, the largest point generating activity that you can achieve is open space preservation in the floodplain. So that is completely aligned with what we're trying to achieve, completely aligned with our goals for wetlands migration. And we realized that by being experts within the CRS, we can actually help communities encourage preservation of open space within those floodplains. And we can actually incentivize and really put a, a monetary value on that preservation. I mean, there are areas in, in coastal Virginia where the CRS program saves property owners millions of dollars a year over, throughout, the, throughout the locality. So that is, that's really how we got into it. And like I said, that's, that's been another one of our, our cornerstone programmatic activities, but it's also been valuable because that is a direct, you know, a direct segue into working closer with these local governments. We shared the coastal community rating system work group in Virginia. And so that's been able to provide us the opportunity to really connect with localities, to really see where the needs are and beyond the CRS to really identify other opportunities for collaboration. Yeah, that's great that it's allowed you to connect with localities in that way. In our work, one of the biggest challenges we've seen is really getting nature-based solution people and hazard mitigation people to talk in the same language, you know, use the same phrases, have the same metrics. How have you guys gone about tackling that challenge? That's an interesting question. One of the things we always really try to focus on is before we start any programmatic area, we're always trying to get back into the localities and really do a large needs assessment. What are the, the biggest issues you all are facing? How does a small organization fit in and, and kind of you know, create positive solutions? And one of the things we always hear are that you know, there's natural siloing between departments. People, as you say, speak different languages. People have different goals and priorities. And you know their experience has also given them different solutions. There are folks in stormwater who maybe haven't learned a lot about the benefits of green infrastructure and still sort of think about water as you know, how do I quick how do I get this water away from the development as quickly and efficiently as possible. And that's sort of been the the traditional way of thinking about stormwater management, but there's a whole lot of issues with that, you know, in terms of downstream effects. So one of the things we've done, we do quite a lot of training We've created training guides and an adaptation guide for local government officials, for planners, but we've also started working on a training program for planning commissioners because we talked to localities and we heard that in some cases, there are some really excellent projects or perhaps some projects that had negative consequences that were either being approved you know, against the recommendation of the planning staff or, or vice versa because there was a disconnect between what the planners were saying and what the planning commissioners knew about what they had heard about in Virginia, I mean, planning commissioners, that's a, there's not a lot of training that's required for that position. And so a lot of these folks, you know, they have full-time jobs. They're oftentimes, you know, figures of the community, they've got a lot going on and they don't really know about what are the, the emerging techniques in, in coastal resiliency or in floodplain management or in stormwater management. So we've tried to meet those folks where they are, provide training materials geared towards them specifically, 
to, to make sure everyone has a better understanding that we're starting to use the same terminology. That's a big component of our work for sure. And definitely super important to get those community leaders involved in this work as well. So glad you guys are doing that. Now, my last question for you is, is a tough one, potentially. How do you stay optimistic in the face of something as daunting as sea level rise, which plays a big role in the work you do every day? So that's another question that I, I do get actually quite a lot. And it's funny because I've never, I've never really had an issue staying optimistic about it. I mean, you know, you see these effects, like I say, in, in Hampton Roads, we see nuisance flooding and sunny day flooding and ghost forests and a lot of these issues all the time. But I think I stay optimistic because I've seen so much growth, even in the time that I've been in this field. So I started working at Wetlands Watch in 2015, right out of grad school. And from that point, from 2015 to, to now here in the beginning of 2023, we have come so far already in a lot of these issues. Like I said earlier, the state has put together its first ever coastal master plan that seeks to you know identify these issues, identify potential projects, identify funding sources for those issues. Since I've started here in 2015, the state has put together what we call the Community Flood Preparedness Fund, which is really the first pot of money of state money that's been available to deal with these resiliency issues. And that's been critical because I, I mentioned Buchanan County just as an example, and that's an area that was decimated by flooding in 2022. And they didn't get FEMA funding to to address, you know, to recover because it's a small area, property values aren't very high, it's hard to hit some of the national metrics, but those are folks who absolutely need help and need support. And now we have this pot of money where we can help fund and help rebuild and ideally rebuild safer. That's something that didn't exist before we have now. I guess in general, I just, I feel like there's so, Virginia has so many coastal assets and has so many assets that are vulnerable to these impacts, but many of them are dependent on the water, right? Like I mentioned earlier, we have the largest naval station in the world. That's a water dependent entity. It's not going anywhere. So we need to address these issues. And again, everyone's on the same page about that. This isn't a, a political issue. This is bipartisan. Everyone agrees on it. To think about a city or a locality or a state's whole resiliency plan, it's a holistic thing that has a whole kit of parts. Some are useful in some areas, some aren't in others. But at the end of the day, we know that we're going to be here. There are areas where there might be hard conversations about managed retreat. There are areas that we might not be able to protect with a flood wall, but there are areas where we can let water in naturally. There are areas where we can encourage development in the, the areas that are least vulnerable along the region. And we're actively doing that. So I've seen more growth in the response to climate change over the last six, seven years than I really could have imagined. So for that reason, I, I've stayed very optimistic about it. You know, obviously the need is very high. The cost of climate change and sea level rise and recurrent flooding is very, very high. But the cost of doing nothing is substantially higher because we are you know, moving forward in so many new ways and so many innovative ways. I do feel very confident that we're going to continue, continue moving forward in a positive direction, protecting people's property values, protecting your natural resources. I feel good about it actually. <laughs> well, I am very glad to end on that note of optimism on World Wetlands Day, which is when this episode will come out. So thank you for joining me today and talking about wetlands, such an important topic. And you really have a lot of great things to say. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And I appreciate your time. 
Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.